0: Good morning. How are we? All right. All right. I heard chilling and good and okay. So I guess it's a mixed crowd today. Well, guys, I'm excited to be with you all this morning. My name is Cameron, one of the pastors here at CTK. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Philippians. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I'll go ahead and make this uh, admission up at the top here. I've had some uh, wicked sinus drainage over the weekend. And so I'm hoping that my thin voice holds out uh, through, through this. And so uh, bear with me if I sound a little stranger than uh, usual. So Philippians chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. Like Andrew mentioned, this week we start a new series studying through this book. And we'll spend the next 10 weeks on that. And this week as I was preparing, I was reminded of uh, when I when my wife and I, Meredith, moved away from the town that I grew up in. So grew up in, in Arkansas when we Moved away from the city I grew up in, the city where uh, I went to college, the city where we got married, my grandmother started writing us letters. So once a month, at the beginning of the month, she would send us a letter, and it was always on like those little stationary notepads that like, your grandma has, and you're like, where did you get that, Like, do you buy that, do they just appear, but they always have them like in a drawer. And so she would write us these letters on these little notepads, put them in an envelope, and send them in the mail uh, every single month. And so every month, we could count on from her hearing updates about what was going on in their life, and we always called them uh, grandma's wartime letters because they were so short, there wasn't a lot of real estate, and prior to the advent of a telephone, uh, back, back when people wanted to communicate with their loved ones when they were away at war, uh, there was kind of an economy of space, right, for how much you could communicate. So it'd be like, so-and-so got married, so-and-so died, so-and-so had a baby, love you, that's it, that's all you got. And so every month we could count on getting some wartime letters from her, and there was a history behind that, and we could see and keep up with and catch up with everything that was unfolding uh, from a distance, And I was reminded this morning, as I studied Philippians this week in this introduction here, uh, that, that Philippians, like most New Testament books, is quite literally a letter just like that written from Paul to a church in Philippi that he knew very well. You see, he had a long history with this church, and we see that start to unfold first in Acts chapter 16. We see that on Paul's second missionary journey, he and, and the people he was with went through the city of Philippi, and actually, that's where the birth of the Philippian church uh, began. He, he met this lady named Lydia, who was a wealthy uh, businesswoman who sold fine clothing and fine goods, and he shared the gospel with her, and she came to faith. And the journey along after that, we see also in Acts chapter 16, that they came across a slave girl who was demon-possessed and being, and being used by her slave owners to basically make money. She was turning tricks and, and telling all sorts of things, and they were using her to make money, and Paul and, his, and, his, and the people he was with cast the demon out of her, and it angered them so much that it landed him in jail, and then while he was in jail, God sent an earthquake and shook the prison and opened the prison doors, and the guard who was set to keep watch of the, over them was so amazed that he fell on his face and worshiped God and began following Jesus also. That is the unlikely beginning of the Philippian church. We have a wealthy single businesswoman, a girl who just came out of slavery, who was just demon-possessed not long ago, and a Roman prison guard. I don't know about you guys, but that sounds like a church-planning dream team. Don't you think? (laughs) I think I think we should try the same thing. But the reason I say this, the reason I want to frame this up is because, just like the letters that I received every month, there's a history behind this letter to the Philippians that's important to understand what's going on in what we read. You see, more than any other letter in the New Testament, we see Paul's warmth and love for the Philippian church who he'd been through so much with. And that's why this letter, I think, has this tone that is so fatherly, so pastoral. Because Paul is writing to encourage them. It's his encouragement that what began among them back in Acts chapter 16, would continue to take root in their life, that their lives might be built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's exactly why we've named the series What We Have, A Life Built on the Gospel, because over the next 10 weeks, we want to highlight what it means for the Christian life to be truly built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that vision first unfolds here in these first 11 verses as Paul gives this grand idea for how the gospel shapes every part of our lives. Let's read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. (coughs) I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you, all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, church, like I said this morning, The big idea I want us to see from this text is that the gospel shapes every part of our lives. The gospel shapes every part of our lives. This morning, I want to look at four aspects of that. The gospel shapes our identity, the gospel shapes our community, the gospel shapes our growth, and the gospel shapes our mission. Let's begin here with this first truth that the gospel shapes our identity. As we look here in this introduction in verse 1, we can see the address follows this way. Paul and Timothy, as a normal way to construct a letter in the time, you'll see this all throughout the Bible, that that who's writing the letter is mentioned first. But then he says this in his address. He says that he's writing to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, like I said, that's not new to us. In, In fact, this introduction and this language of saints in the church is the same language that we see in, in Ephesians. It's the same that we see in Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and Colossians. The same kind of, kind of introduction with the same language of saints. But I want to draw attention to that and highlight what's beneath that. Because the word saint is not just an arbitrary name that Paul decided to call the church. You see, it's a title that carries with it a very weighty and important meaning about the identity of Christians. You see, the root word for saint is holy. Holy means dedicated, pure, set apart. So what might it mean for Christians to be called saints? It means that Christians... The saints in Christ Jesus are those who are set apart for Christ. And what that means, and what I want us to see, is that that means that the gospel implies a change of identity for us as followers of Jesus. Those who are followers of Jesus have been totally changed. We have been given both a new status and a new calling. We've been given a new status... Because of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. You see, Romans 3.23 says that all of us, every single one of us born in this world, born of Adam, are sinners. By our very nature, we are rebels and enemies of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us that it's because of our sin that we are guilty before a holy God and his wrath is upon us. The punishment for our sin is death an eternal separation from God. Apart from Christ, that was our position. Apart from Christ, that was our position. Our status before God was as guilty sinners condemned to an eternal death. But the gospel The good news, Romans 5, 8 tells us, is that God demonstrates his love for us, his undeserved love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us that he became sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, it was in this transaction of Jesus becoming the sacrifice for our sins and because of his blood spilled for us that we can have right standing with God. Colossians 1.12 says it this way, Jesus has qualified us. John 1.12 says that all who believe in Jesus have been given the right to be called sons of God. Jesus has granted us a new position. A new status. In the sight of God, we are no longer rebels and enemies. Because of the perfect blood of Jesus Christ sacrificed for us on the cross, we are seen as children, pure, holy saints. But the Bible shows us also that this position should change our condition. That this reality that we experience, experience vertically between us and God, that we have right standing with him, should change our lives. Who we are in Christ, our new identity, our new status, should shape the whole of our lives. That's why Romans 1.7, when Paul introduces the same idea, he says that to be a saint is a calling. It's not only a new status, but a new calling. To be a saint in Christ Jesus means that we have, yes, received that new status because of what Jesus has done for us, but that we are now called as saints to pursue that identity with the whole of our lives. And Paul picks up this idea later in Philippians 1 verse 27. It's an idea he continues on later. He says, live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, this new status, this new identity that you have been given in Jesus. Strive to become who you already are in Christ. That's the encouragement. Strive to become who you already are in Christ. Now, here's why I think that matters. You see, the question of identity, who we are, is perhaps one of the most fundamental questions we can ask of ourselves. In fact, I just want to ask you to participate in this exercise with me. If I ask you the question, who are you? What comes to mind? Who are you? Who are you? Chances are, as you think through that, it probably turns into a little bit of a headache. Because how do you even answer that question? How do I answer the question of who am I? What's my identity? I mean, you might tell me your name. You might tell me uh, where you're from, what, what your job is. You might tell me about your family. But really, none of these things truly tell me who you are on a foundational, fundamental level. None of these things tell us who we truly are. And the problem with that, the problem in this search for and quest for identity is that identity is pretty important to who we are, right? Who we are, our identity dictates everything about our lives. It tells us what we love, what we do, how we do it, who we are walking with. Identity informs the whole of our lives. Identity is not just the foundation that we build upon it's the blueprints for the finished product. How many of you guys are, are puzzlers? Not puzzlers like you puzzle other people, but you do puzzles. Anybody? Okay, okay, there we go. got. Uh, was that really the confusion? Some of you guys were like, how hey, does hold up your hand? You're like, well, I, I think I puzzle people. I don't, I don't know if that's what he means, though. Hopefully that's not what you thought. So my wife is, uh, at one point in time, Maybe more so than now was a pretty avid puzzler, and we picked up a lot on that uh, last year. We were living in D.C. and kind of trapped in our apartment. We did a couple of puzzles, and I have to tell you, I don't know if you know this about me, but if if you get to know me, you'll probably say this fits your personality perfectly. I hate puzzles. I hate them so much. The, like, the, the diligence that it takes to just examine that picture and then to just look at these little tiny pieces and put them in the right spot, it drives me crazy. And I watched when we put out a puzzle on the table. We put it out on our coffee table uh, when we lived in D.C. It was one of the only surfaces we had big enough. And we'd display these puzzles out and we'd be looking at it. And Meredith, my wife, would be going through and finding the colors that match where they were on the box and she'd put them kind of in quadrants where they belonged on this puzzle that was coming together. And that was just worth that was beyond me. I hated it. And I I wanted to just look at the pieces and say this piece fits this piece and this fits... and, And I wanted to do that over and over and over again but the discipline to look at the box and see what the picture was was the difference between my frustrated version of getting mad after three or four pieces and her ability to sit there for a long time and be able to construct this thing and make this picture come together. You see, church, I think that identity for us... Just like the picture on a puzzle box tells us what the finished product should look like, identity tells us what the finished product will look like. We pursue the things that make us into who we believed ourselves to be at our core. So why is this important or relevant and why is, this, why is this particularly important in the context in which we live our lives right now? And I'll say this, I think if you look out at the world right now, you could say that our world is in, especially in the Western uh, North American context that we are in, our world is in one big collective identity crisis. One big collective identity crisis. In so many avenues of life, people are searching for identity and purpose and meaning, trying to find who they are. Some people try to find it in their careers. They'll be Dave, the really good banker. They'll be, they'll be Kristen, the really good accountant. They'll try to find that in their career. Well, some people try to find it in their families. They search for that meaning and purpose. They, they seek to answer that question, who am I, in their spouse and in their children. Also, at work in our world, some people hope to find that answer, that, that longing, burning desire for who am I in their gender identity. There are more more genders at work in the world being identified than I could presently, in the time I have allotted here, list. And it's representative of how people are searching for this. Some people hope to find it in their sexual expression. Some hope to find it in the pronouns that make them feel like who they are. Some hope to find it in their nationality or their ethnicity, and their political party. All around us, people And we ourselves often run this race of seeking an identity that we can build our lives on, an answer to the question, Who am I?, so that we can make the work of putting the puzzle make sense. But rather than pursuing an identity in this way, the calling of Christians is different. You see, the gospel redefines and reorients this pursuit for us. The gospel doesn't tell us to go searching for who we are. It tells us who we are in Christ, and that is an identity that shapes the whole of our lives. Rather than being in pursuit of identity or collecting bits and pieces, our identity is received from Christ. It is given to us, and the calling of Christians is to build our lives on that gospel truth. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I think ultimately it's the work of repentance. It's the work of repentance that we go from finding ourselves and our identity, in our old self, to finding it in Christ. Ephesians 2.24 calls us to put off the old self that's corrupted by sin and to put on the new self, which is being restored to how God created us to be. It's a process of out with the old and in with the new. The gospel shapes our identity by calling us to strive to become who Christ has made us to be. So I want to ask you this question this morning, just a diagnostic question for your life. If you were to take stock right now, I mean, look at your life, what what controls your affections, what gets your time and money, your resources, your talents. Take stock of all of those things and ask yourself, what identity am I pursuing? Who am I trying to become? Do I even know who I am? And what am I doing to get there? Take that and compare that. Can you honestly, before God, answer the question that I am striving to become who Christ has made me to be? Or are there other things in your life in the way of that? Are you in pursuit of becoming someone else? if that's the case, what does it look like for you to repent of that? The second truth is this, the gospel shapes our community. I think in this introduction, you can really feel the love and and the thankfulness that Paul has for the Philippian church. He says in verse three that he thinks of them and he prays for them often with joy, that they're the kind of friends who bring joy to his life. He says in verse five, because of your partnership. In the gospel, because of your partnership in the gospel. Now, this idea of partnership is an interesting phrase that communicates, I think, an idea that really spans all of the work of Philippians. But what exactly does it mean? Well, I think most commentators agree that there are two options. Paul could be talking about two different things when it comes to talking about partners in the gospel. The first option is that he is literally talking about their partnership in the work of advancing the gospel. In other words, Paul might be saying, I'm thankful for the teamwork. I'm glad that you guys are on the same team with me in spreading the gospel. We see evidences of that at a few points in Philippians, particularly in verse 4:15 chapter 4, verse 15, when Paul says that he's glad that they are supporting him financially for his work. The Philippians were, by every stretch of the definition, the kind of community that was locked arms with Paul in mission. But another option could be that Paul is expressing his thankfulness for their fellowship, his experience with them as fellow believers. In other words, Paul could be saying that he's thankful for their partnership as companions and friends, People who are like-minded with him, who encourage him and compel him as he follows Christ. So which is it? Right? Which, which one is it? What is Paul trying to say when he's thankful for their partnership? What is this idea that unfolds throughout Philippians? And the answer, I believe, that is best supported in this text is that both of these aspects are necessary to explain how Paul feels about the Philippians. He sees them both as teammates along with him, along in the journey of making the gospel advance. But he also sees them as friends that he is joyful to have in his life. They are partners, it says, fellow partakers of grace with him in verse 7. Both of these things, I think, are necessary to explain what Paul means. But church, I think both of these things are also necessary to explain what gospel community should look like. You see, the gospel shapes our community because it calls us to a people who are alike, both with a common identity and a common mission. In our lives, we need community that shares our desires, our ambitions, and our pursuits. We need to be in fellowship with other Christians who have a desire to honor Christ with their life, who are pursuing an identity built on him. We need people in that same way who are able to challenge us and encourage us and build us up and correct us when necessary. That's what makes the difference between gospel community and some ordinary community. That's what makes the difference between friendship, people who we like being around, and true Christian fellowship. True Christian fellowship is a partnership in the gospel with people who are headed in the same direction with us. These are fellow Christians who long to build their lives on the gospel and who encourage us to do the same. The Bible shows us that this type of community is absolutely essential for us as followers of Jesus. And it's a detriment to us if we don't press into this gift. It's a detriment to us if we don't press into this gift. We need Christian community to strengthen and encourage and compel our souls as we follow Christ. Without it, we're weak. Half of what we should be. So just by way of application, I want to ask you this question. Where in your life are you experiencing true Christian fellowship? Where in your life are you marked by partnership in the gospel? And guys, I'm not talking about your, your, your uh, wife's husband uh, or your wife's husband. That's your your wife's friend's husband, who you're just around sometimes and you guys talk about football and yeah, he's a Christian, but you know, that, that's that. I'm not talking about when you come here to the gatherings and you're like, well, hey, I see so and so and so and so and so and so and they're Christians. I go to my city group and they're Christians also. We can be around community of other Christians, but where in your life are you actually experiencing true fellowship with other believers? People who meet your needs, who challenge you, who shape you, who point you in the direction of becoming more like Christ. Church, it would would be a shame. It would be a shame if we found ourselves gathered among these people all the time. We know their names. We know the names of their spouse and their children. We know all about their lives. We have this kind of facade of community. It would be a shame if that were true of us, but we never actually pressed into the gift that God has given us in Christian fellowship. It's my encouragement to you this morning is the gospel shapes that community for you. Your task is to press in. The third truth is this. The gospel shapes our growth. The gospel shapes our growth. Read with me in verse 6. It says this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I think all throughout Philippians, and especially here in the first 11 verses, what we see is the magnitude of God's sovereignty in the gospel. Let me tell you what that means. We see the magnitude of how God alone was at work in all of these things, how he was responsible for it all, how every truth of the gospel was by his hand alone. In Christ, we are qualified. In Christ, we grow. It was Christ who qualified the Philippians to be saints. It was Christ who, who was responsible for the work of grace that was happening among them. And here, Paul gives them this incredible assurance that God would actually continue that work from now until they met Christ. Hear that, because I think that's vitally important. Paul isn't high-fiving the Philippians, praising them for how great they've done and how hard they've been working, how, how, how much they've been picking themselves up by their bootstraps and, and really trying to live in this gospel truth and really trying to follow Christ with all of their being. Paul is thanking God for his work in them that he is solely responsible for. Here's why that's important. The sovereignty of God In the gospel, over our salvation, over our sanctification, our growth in Christ, and over glorification, God completing the work, is a doctrine that matters. God's sovereignty in the gospel is a doctrine that matters. For one, it's the understanding of the Bible that gives the most glory to God. The reason that our church, as Christ the King, places such an emphasis on what we call reform theology is because it's a big God theology. It makes much of God. It highlights the incredible nature of his grace that he not only makes a way for us to be saved, but also gives us the faith to follow him and carries out his will and our our lives and will, without fail, bring the work of the gospel to completion in us. That is totally and completely the work of God. Neither our salvation, nor our growth, nor our perseverance in Christ are our own doing. They are totally and completely the work of God. Secondly, building on this reason, the sovereignty of God in the gospel, therefore, is the only basis of our hope and assurance. The sovereignty of God in the gospel is our only basis of hope and assurance. And here's why. Because if if our hope and our assurance, our growth, our perseverance in Jesus, our continuing to follow after him with our life, if that were totally based on us, our ability, our effort, our responsibility, we would be in trouble. We would be in trouble. We are prone to wonder, prone to sin. Apart from God's work to keep us and hold us in his hand, we would abandon him tomorrow. No amount of resilience on our part can overcome the temptation to turn away from Christ and pursue our sin. But here's the good news. Everything about our life in Jesus... Our growth in him, our perseverance after him, is not our own doing. It is by the grace and power of God at work in us. And as J. Alec Montier says, God's work is, by definition, effective. God's work, by definition, is effective. We are not able to pursue Christ and grow faithfully in him by our own effort, but God is able to do the work. That's why verse 6 comes as the sweetest assurance to us that he who began that work will carry out that work and he will complete that work by his grace and by his power alone. Church, I want you to hear this no matter where you are coming from this morning, no matter where you are, I hope this is an assurance and a truth that nourishes your soul. God finishes what he starts. God finishes what he starts. Here's what that means. That means that we can have confidence this morning that no matter what season we are walking through, no matter what chaos is unfolding in your life or in the world around you, no matter what sin is making wreckage in your life, in your kids' lives, in your marriage, in your friendships, No matter where you've been, no matter where you are, no matter what you fear, and no matter the ugliness that is in our own souls, God is not finished with you. The hope of the gospel is that he is with you and he is working in you and he, without fail, will finish what he started. Church, that is our confidence this morning, that he who began a work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. I don't know about you, but this is a truth that I need to be reminded of often. This is a truth that I need to be reminded of often. You see, for probably the last decade of my life to give you <clears throat> just a little bit of insight into uh, my life and my heart and how Christ has been working in me and growing and shaping me for the last decade of my life i would probably describe myself as a recovering self-critic a recovering self-critic and and i really believe just looking at my life that uh, that will be me until Christ brings me home that always i'll be working f- through this temptation To sin, to see my own, like a criticism of myself, be debilitating in my life, be debilitating in my ministry, be debilitating in my marriage and in my family. You see, I learned from someone who was close to me, who was a mentor to me, how to criticize myself. I internalized the things that he said about me, the things he said uh, to other people about me, the the ways that he subtly undermined my confidence, the ways that he subtly uh, undermined my work. And everything about who I was, I learned from him a pattern of repeating that in my life. And here's what that looks like, just to give you some insight and glimpse into me. If you have ever had a complaint about me, I promise I have lodged that complaint about myself with far worse uh, accusation than you could ever manage of myself. I I, I see myself through this lens of just honestly self-hatred at times in my life. That's a sin that I'm working through in my own heart. And that's why I need the gospel. That's why I need the reassurance and the reminder that God is at work. I need the gospel every day in my life to go to war against me from what's happening in my own souls, the accusations that I launch against myself daily. It reminds me that I am fully loved and fully known and fully accepted by God even when I don't love and accept myself. It reminds me that even if the worst I believed about myself were true, God still sees me. And when he sees me, he doesn't see the rebellious, sinful failure that I know myself to be. He sees the merit of Christ. And he sees that every single day. When I I walk through seasons of doubt, seasons of hurt, seasons of sin, and seasons of struggle, the gospel reminds me that God has not abandoned me, that his opinion about me hasn't changed because my opinion about myself has changed. The gospel reminds me that God began a work of fruitfulness in my life, and he will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Friends, if that's you, I don't know. Maybe you're with me on that, and maybe you're not. But all of us need the assurance and hope that is found only in a God who is able to do that work. This assurance is is essential for our growth in Christ because it's the very essence of what the gospel is. And friends, we never outgrow our need for the gospel. It's not just the starting point in our lives. The gospel is not just the foundation that we build from. The gospel is the air we breathe. It's everything about who we are. That's exactly why in verses 9 through 11, Paul says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ through the glory and praise of God. Church, the encouragement here is to see that true growth in Christ is not going beyond the gospel. It's not getting the gospel right and going on from there. True growth in Christ is going deeper and deeper every single day in this gospel truth to allow our whole lives to be informed by it. In the words of Tim Keller, the gospel is not the ABCs, it's the A to Z. It's everything about who we are. And what that means is we need to constantly be turning our eyes back to the gospel truth and letting our whole lives be built up in it. Everything about the way we see ourselves, our motivations, our affections, who we see ourselves to be as we grow along this trajectory of following Christ needs to be built on the hope and assurance that is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I just want to ask you this morning, are you standing in the confidence and assurance of the gospel? Like, it, just look at your life right now. Do you see yourself built on that confidence and that hope? Or do you see yourself as hopeless, lost, far from God, feeling like a failure? Are you experiencing the hope and assurance that comes from the gospel? And if the answer is no, where in your life are you not feeling that? Where do you need to be reminded of this truth? What sin, what lie, what exists in your life that causes you to lose sight of that good news? Church, here's my encouragement. That you preach the gospel to yourself. You preach the gospel to yourself every single day until you believe it. Because it's true, because Christ has made it so. Not because of your effort or because of your doing. Christ is at work in you because he is. Preach the gospel to yourself. The last truth is this. The gospel shapes our mission. I think one of the most jarring things to note about Paul's letter to the Philippians is that he is writing to them from a Roman prison, sitting in a prison cell, writing to the church at Philippi. Here is a man who in his life, if you know the history of Paul, went from being a person who persecuted the church, who killed Christians for their faith, who now proclaims and preaches that very same gospel message that they did. He went from persecuting the church to being persecuted by the state for advancing the gospel. And I think what that means for us is that Paul's life is an example of how the gospel radically reorients us. It gives us a new identity, yes. It gives us a new community, yes. But it also gives us a new purpose, a new mission. The gospel shapes our mission. And the Philippians, their lives reflect that truth. If you look in verse 7, Paul calls them fellow partakers of grace with him, both in his imprisonment and in his defense and confirmation of the gospel. In other words, the Philippians were the people who were with him. They were with him in the mission in seasons of low when the church was being persecuted. They were with him to work to advance the gospel, to defend and proclaim this truth. The mission of God that first sent Paul to the Philippians was now being carried out by them also. They were with him. They were supporting him and carrying out the work of advancing the gospel in their city. And Paul is, of course, expressing his thankfulness for the testimony of the Philippian church and how God was working mightily through them. But I think their example I think their example of faithfulness to the mission is a challenge to us, also. It's a model for how the gospel ought to shape our purpose, how the gospel ought to shape our mission. So let me ask you this, if you were to just look at your life, again, I'm asking you to take stock of yourself a lot, but take stock of your life and look at yourself. If someone were to, to write a letter of thankfulness, the way Paul is giving this address, expressing his thankfulness in his life, and in the, or in the life of the Philippians, what would they say that you lived for? What would they say you lived for? What would they say that your purpose was? What is the mission that you are serving? Is it the mission of God to advance the gospel and make disciples, or is there another mission that's, that's taking control of your life? Are you pursuing some other purpose? Friends, I want us to see from this passage that the gospel calls us to a new purpose and a new mission. Our lives ought to reflect that in real and tangible ways. So what is your life serving? Again, we can sometimes trace the smoke back down to the flames and see the thing that we, we spend our time and has our affection and our energy is often the thing that we worship and pursue. It's the mission that we live for. At church, I would call us to see that the gospel calls us to a new purpose. It calls us to make the mission of God our own, to devote our lives to seeing the gospel advance and disciples being made as Christians. That should be the singular devotion of our lives. Everything else in our life, every other aspect and thing that we pursue is either going to be in service to that or it's gonna be in the way of that. So what in your life is in the way of the gospel mission. What's keeping you from the work that Christ has called you to? And what's it going to take for you to put that in line, to repent of that, to make the mission our own, to get out of the way of everything else and live for the mission that Christ has called us to? Friends, in conclusion, I'll say this, the gospel shapes everything about our lives, but this is a work in progress. It's our task to always be examining our lives and asking what corner of my life isn't being shaped by the gospel. And seek God on what it looks like to repent, reorient, and refocus that you might build your life on the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that we are saved in and now stand in, that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. Father, that you love us, you desire to know us. Father, and you are shaping us. Your word says that that you are shaping and molding us into the image of Christ. And Father, that is your work and your work alone. So Father, I pray that we would just have the, the boldness and confidence, the humility to submit to that work. Father, I pray that, that you would help us, Father, lead us to what it means to see all of our lives be shaped on the gospel, that we would be a people, as Paul see, says here of the Philippians, who are, who are with one another, who are following the mission and purposes of God, who are, who are firmly planted in the identity that you have given us, and whose life are a glorious reflection of that. Father, we pray, do that work in us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.